This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 104 of the DeFacto Leaders podcast. In this episode, I am so excited to share my interview with Michael Campbell, an SLP from New Mexico, who is a published book author and an author of the thinkslp.com blog. In addition to being an author, he is also very involved in advocacy efforts and political lobbying and has been very active in the union. And this is something that gets talked about a lot in some of the professional discussion groups, a lot of people know that advocacy efforts are important, but a lot of people don't know where to start and how to actually do it. And they also don't know whose responsibility it is to do it. So in this conversation, we get into a discussion on some tangible things that you can actually do in order to get involved in advocacy efforts if you are going to be involved with your union or if you just want to do it as a constituent. Honestly, before this conversation, I knew that lobbying was a thing, but I wasn't exactly sure what it meant. What are you doing when you're lobbying? So he explains that and he also talks about how you can get information about specific bills that impact you, how you can work together with your colleagues so that you can form alliances and work together so that it's a team effort to really benefit the employees and the students in your organization. 
and also just what you can do when you're actually reaching out to politicians to get their attention. So it's a great conversation. And if you feel like you don't have a voice and you want to know what you can do right now to make a difference, you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Before we get going, I wanted to talk about the School of Clinical Leadership. The School of Clinical Leadership is a program for pediatric clinicians who are serving school-age kids, so SLPs, psychologists, social workers, school counselors, and other related service providers who want to make a bigger impact with their work. In this conversation, we are talking about a lot of things that you can do above and beyond your role as a clinician to make an impact on your caseload, to make your life easier, to make the lives of your colleagues easier, and of course, to benefit those that you serve. But in order to know how to make time for those things, you need to make sure that you have a good system. What I like to refer to as the master plan. The master plan is a strategy that I teach in the School of Clinical Leadership to help clinicians create a long-term plan for some kind of initiative that is important to them. In this conversation, Michael mentions that every year or every block of time that he has, you know, whether it's a couple months, whether it is a school year, he's focusing on one bill or one project at a time. And in order to do that, you've got to know how to map out the time to focus on those things. And when you are a busy clinician and you have a huge caseload, it can be really difficult to figure out how to block out time for those things that are included in advocating for your caseload. And really, if you do figure out a good system for this, it makes a huge difference in the long run. You can leave a lasting impact on your field. And also, over time, it can make a difference on the caseload that you're serving right now. I've used this master planning process for a number of different purposes. I used it when I was doing my dissertation while I was working full time. I've also used it for advocacy initiatives. There was one year that there were a group of students who I knew really needed summer services, and I had to start planning at the beginning of the year to create a plan and get my team on board so that we could have the data that we needed to make sure that we got students access to the services that they needed. And I've used it for a number of other different initiatives as well. But the main thing is, is that you have to think ahead and you can't get caught in the weeds with all of the fires that you need to put out day to day. And that's what I show you how to do in the School of Clinical Leadership. Now, one of the big initiatives that I talk about in this program is executive functioning support, but you can use the master planning process really for any long-term project that you want to do. The program is focused on taking on a leadership role regardless of your job title so that you can make a bigger impact with your work. So to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership to learn how to become a member. Now, please enjoy this interview with Michael Campbell. Today, I am joined by Michael Campbell from Think SLP. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So I thought we'd just start off by having you share a little bit about yourself. So I guess your your origin story, what led you to the work you're doing now and what, what do you do? That is a great question with a long answer. Um, so we'll start now. Right now, I'm 
practicing as a speech and language pathologist. Um, how I got here, it's been a journey. I've always um, enjoyed working with people and I started out wanting to work uh, as a teacher and I kind of did there for a while. I really enjoyed it. Um, I worked with students in trio programs, Upward Bound, helping underrepresented students and populations get into undergraduate programs, a lot of tutoring, a lot of college admissions coaching, um, and mentoring and just kind of hand-holding, which I really enjoyed and learning about the process of college admissions. I was very lucky to earn a Fulbright to go teach in Mexico for a year. I taught English as a second language uh, in public schools. I stayed teaching in private schools, um, always middle school-ish age. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I got into administration a little bit. In Mexico, they, it was called a coordinator, but sort of like an assistant principal okay. or a grade-level principal. Um and then I knew I wanted to do something different eventually. I knew I wanted to go back for my master's degree. And there's a lot of practical reasons that I pursued speech and language pathology, lateral mobility, the ability to um, move into private practice, things like that. But it was still in the same sphere of education and teaching and language, which is what I really enjoyed. Um, and so, yeah, I went back for my master's degree in SLP. Um, I spoke Spanish. That was what I wanted to teach originally, even though I never did. Um, and with my years in Mexico, it made a lot of sense to um, specialize in bilingual SLP. Um, and so, yeah, I went back to my graduate degree, did a little bit of research. Um, and then I um, have continued practicing since then for a couple of years now. So, And you have a lot of different interests and projects. So there's so many different directions we could go in this conversation. I know that you have a book out. And you've done a lot of research into advocacy and unions, which I really want to get into. Can you tell us a little bit about your book before we start on those other topics, though? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking about it. So I um, took a lot of my experience from Upward Bound and coaching um, high school students on getting into undergraduate. And I applied it to my own experience when I was applying for my master's program for graduate school. And I started writing about it on a, a website, thespeechblog.com. Not the most original name, but it worked. Um, <laughs> And coaching people, kind of trying to demystify the admissions process for graduate school, because there's a lot of confusion and question and doubt. And I think it keeps a lot of good candidates from um, pursuing higher education, specifically in our field where we have a big need. And eventually I, I had enough information and content that I sort of repurposed it and reorganized it into um, a book. And I was working with a publisher for a traditional publication route, and then the pandemic hit and the world changed. Yeah. Um, but he really encouraged me to pursue self-publication. Um, and so I worked with an editor and a typesetter and a, an artist for the cover and um, put out a book. It's called SLP to be, and it's the unofficial guide to getting into graduate school for speech and language pathology. It just um, walks people through the process of writing statements, how to prepare for interviews, etc. Wow. So I just recently had someone on, it's actually not published yet, who did the traditional oh. publishing route. So that is really interesting that you've done self-publishing. So what was it mostly just the pandemic and just everything going on in the world that you decided to do self-publishing? What made you want to go that route other than just being it being recommended to you? Yeah, it was mostly the recommendation. I had I sort of pursued that traditional route. I found this small niche um, publishing house and I seemed excited about it. They seemed excited about it. And then they just couldn't take the risk of publishing anything. I'm not sure um, what's happened to them since then. But they said, you know, definitely look into this. And once I did, I realized it was a really viable option that I didn't know much about before. Um, and I'm glad I did it. It gave me a lot more um, both control and opportunities to learn things. Like you mentioned, I have a lot of interests. I love learning new things. And so the self-publishing route gave me a lot of opportunities to kind of 
build little skills and learn things along the way, which I really enjoy. So. Where did you go to figure all of that out? Google, always Google. <laughs> Occasionally some podcasts. Uh, I have a friend who's an editor and writer with uh, Hallmark. Um, they were able to kind of give me some tips along the way. Um, yeah, the internet. That's where I learn a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I hmm, I may definitely have some questions about that at some point. I have just published everything in Canva or Microsoft Word yeah. and just put it out. <laughs> you know, that's been my route is just get it out to people as soon as possible. But I definitely have on my on my bucket list actually writing a book and putting it all into a book eventually so hmm, now i know who to ask about self publishing i'd love to tell you the little tiny bit that i know <laughs> so i i'm curious about the graduate admissions process because i what i did is i just did picked my major when i was in actually before yeah i mean I initially was going to do deaf education. Then I decided to switch to speech pathology before I started my freshman year and just went four years and then went right to grad school. So I didn't have the job experience and I didn't leave and come back and all of that. And it's interesting because when we're coaching, I know that that this is more, I would say in the professional coaching realm for speech pathologists, but I'm wondering if some of that information would be even useful for therapists or special ed teachers who are working with kids who are thinking about their future and whether how they're going to prepare for college after high school. I mean, there's a lot of information out there for preparing kids K-12. There's not as much for afterwards, at least not in our field. That's not something that comes up a lot. I mean, I'm just curious if like what kinds of things came up for you as far as things that were the hardest about the admissions process, mistakes that people make, things that people really need to focus on when they're thinking about college and graduate school? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of perhaps overlapping connection there that I haven't really delved into or thought about. Yeah. Um, but just as you ask it, I'm just kind of spitballing here, as they say, a big part of it. Um, is helping students plan and manage the process, which I think requires a lot of executive function, a lot of yep. um, language reasoning and organization skills, research skills. Um, I think the process sort of, unfortunately, naturally kind of weeds out certain apl applicants who might not have those really developed organization skills, because it can be really hard to keep track of deadlines for multiple things um, and to miss details in the instructions, like a word limit or a page limit that might be used as an automatic disqualifier um, by a program. So those are some of the simple things. And then the biggest, one of the biggest things I focus on is um, helping students enrich the quality of their writing. Mm. Um, so I find a lot of people have these wonderful experiences and they don't know how to talk about them um, or they underestimate themselves and the value of their experiences. And I think so many different things can be relevant to our field. If you have a background like I did in education and this um, helping world and a language world, if you have a background in business administration, working for a beer distributor, I had a classmate who did that. Um, so many things can be relevant to our field. And so helping people realize how their skills and experiences are relevant and then write about them in a, in a good way for their applications. Yeah, that could be, that skill is so important for so many different things, job interviews, people who are wanting to make a career transition, or even just 
you know, get another job in the field that they're already in. So for example, if you are a therapist or a teacher and you want to make the jump to being a supervisor or a coordinator or an administrator, I know that that was something that was hard for me when I was looking into school administration. A lot of people who are school administrators, they had a lot of candidates that were a school psychologist and then a school administrator and a special ed teacher and then a school administrator. And I felt like I was this outlier who was a speech pathologist. They always just want to put you over with the speech people and not necessarily talk about how this can be something that is broader special ed, even though it totally could be. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I bet you could, if you, not that you need another project, because it sounds (laughs) like you have a lot of stuff you're doing, but I think that could be really valuable in other contexts as well. Yeah, thank you. I you've got me thinking about it now. I'm going to keep it yeah. in the back pocket for sure. <laughs> um, one of the going back and then we'll go forward. Another, I think, big connection for a lot of populations that we work with is that meta, um, you know, meta thinking and metacognition and yeah. meta language, and that was another part of, or is another part of what I work on and getting people to think about the process from another perspective and to think about how they can present themselves in the process, and that is, yeah, definitely related transferable skills and introspection and. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will, we will link to your book in the show notes if people want to check it out. Uh, I know that a lot of people who are listening are probably already SLP. So they've already been through grad school, but maybe they are thinking about going back for a doctorate. So maybe it could be useful for that. Or maybe they have people who are asking them about the field and they want a good resource to share with them. So that could be something. I know that there's probably a lot of people who are you know, they're an SLPA or they're getting a bachelor's degree and they're in these professional groups. So always good to have a resource to share. So switching topics to advocacy. So you've done a lot of work on being involved in unions and advocacy. And I think that a lot of people, when it comes to this topic, think it's something that needs to be done, but people don't really know where to start. And you have a really helpful article on your site about Asha's listening session. And so you you kind of summed up some key takeaways here. So can you tell us a little bit about that session, what you took away from it and your thoughts? Sure. Um, I wanted to go to the Asha listening session to, to hear what other people were saying and also to make sure that my experience wasn't um, unique, you know, make sure I'm not the only one going through the things that many of our colleagues are going through. Um, And so I I got those things at the session. I really enjoyed it. I think the the board doing the listening did so really um, openly and they had it structured in a really nice way that it didn't devolve into something um, less productive. And there was a big, they they had structured it in a way where they had questions, um, sort of seed questions to get conversations going. And then I sort of stepped back and reflected on what I heard. And for me, it was sort of four key themes that kept coming up over and over, mm-hmm. no matter how we steered the conversation. The biggest, the first one was workload. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of ways to talk about it. Caseload, workload, hours, productivity, yeah. but that kept coming up a lot. Um, tied to that, of course, compensation, um, be that direct salary numbers or all the other things that can go into compensation. And then I think that it just kind of flowed into this um, respect and dignity and um sort of how those are being challenged and changing in a lot of ways, not only in our field and our profession, but many professions and fields and 
it's different in society right now. And then um, that last one, I think, um, assigning responsibility. Now, who's responsible for fixing these things? These are yeah. problems we're seeing. Who's responsible for fixing them? How can we fix them? What can we do about it? Um, and there was a lot of different ideas around that. And it was it was encouraging. Um, I, I did really enjoy the call. But yeah, those were a couple of the things I heard about. So I I would love to hear your take on workload. You had some interesting thoughts there. And I mean, you know, it's it's something that I had experience with it when I was in the schools. We trialed the workload model or at least presented it to the administration. And it was definitely something in the surrounding areas that was being promoted as the solution. But I know you have some thoughts on the issue. So I'll let you I'll let you explain your takeaways there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think I, I didn't realize that historically ASHA had this case load cap. Um, and then it was scrapped because employers weren't paying attention to it. Um, and then people thought it was sort of too blunt an instrument um, to really take into account a lot of the complexities that you have when you're calculating a caseload and a workload. Mm-hmm. Um, and just from what I heard from, well, I'll, I'll jump to my take. I think the calculators that are out there can be helpful, but I think they're a little too complex. Mm-hmm. I think people know, oh, well, I can just underestimate this and that'll put this within the range. And of course, who you ask to fill out that workload calculator um, is probably going to change the results that that workload calculator spits out. Um, and so I I kind of started thinking of it too, like the speed limit. Um, you know, if the highway says the speed limit is 75, that's in sunny conditions, dry roads, low traffic. And I think we should think of workload calculators and caps the same way. That's when the sun is shining and the road is dry and things are great. That's when we can work at that maximum cap. But instead, we're kind of treating them as sort of like a minimum, like, oh, you have to be going this faster. You have to be going with this many students. And I think that when we're considering, you know, the unprecedented staffing shortages that we're facing in schools and hospitals, um, you know, turnover is high right now, generally challenging times. Those mm-hmm. high levels aren't sustainable. And so I think, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I get, I get where people are coming from to say a student who you're seeing for articulation is very different than a student who, you know, is non-speaking and has different needs. So that makes sense. But where I have personally had a hard time presenting it to administrators is just because it is so complicated. And a school administrator has so many different things on their plate. They want something that's simple. Let's make a decision. Let's go with something that we can easily implement. And when you start introducing all this complexity that can't be replicated. I think the ability to replicate something like that, can you replicate a model where it's a flat number of students? That's way easier than a workload. It doesn't mean that that's the better option, but I think that that's why that is so much more appealing to administrators. And of course you have the whole, you know, with states not being consistent with what they require. So I love what you said there. Like it might not be the better option, but it might be the more appealing option or the easier to implement option. And that's really true. Sometimes we're thinking about false choices or um, false equivalencies. And sometimes, yeah, it might not be the best option, but it's what what we can do or what we can explain to people. And I think even if we have administrators who get it, because a lot of times they, I think they truly do. Mm -hmm. um, They have a boss too, and they have a boss. And this kind of gets into the advocacy piece and the political piece they have a boss too. And sometimes that boss is, you know, the public education department in your state or the legislature. 
um, or the public in general. And our capacity to understand the nuance of our students is obviously very high. This is the field we work in. Um, but when somebody's not as familiar with the nuance of it, we have to try and simplify it to make it short and quick and be able to explain it to somebody. Um, but we lose the nuance that helps us uh, set these caps in a way that makes sense. It's it's a hard balance. Mm-hmm. And I think that what where people get stuck with advocacy issues and where they get discouraged or they get into more of a victim mindset about it is where they don't they don't get the results that they want. But oftentimes you really do have to think about things from the other person's perspective where, yes, it would be so much better if we had this perfectly customized model, but that might be, you almost have to do it in baby steps and just inch towards something that is more realistic, but at least a step in the right direction. I mean, even if we didn't go with a workload analysis and we just decrease the caseload numbers, yeah, we're still going by numbers, but if we could get the cap to be lower, that would be a step in the right direction, even though it doesn't solve the whole problem of some clients having more significant needs than others. I mean, the simplicity is key when you're dealing with some kind of a bureaucratic system that has all yes. these different levels to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I like what you said about, you know, it really is important and difficult to take the other side and to understand the argument against something that we're arguing for. And that's something when I'm advocating for something in any kind of capacity, not always, but I'll try to ask, um, what is it that's keeping you from doing this? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, who is it that it's in opposition to this and why? And I really seek to dig into that why and understand it. Um, because sometimes it's something that I didn't know, or sometimes it's something that I think, oh, there's this information that if I present it to you, that why will make more sense or will go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really important is to just assume. I just go in assuming that everybody has good intentions yes. and that they're not sitting there trying to make the SLPs or the social worker or whoever's life yes, yes. They probably they have a boss too. That's what yes. I have to say. Yes. And I think about that sometimes when I, I generally agree with a lot of the decisions my supervisors make about things. But when I disagree, I think, you know, I trust them and I respect them in these other contexts. There's probably some reasoning that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have the time and the capacity and the permission to explain it to me. And sometimes they don't. And that's mm-hmm. that's part of work. Yep, it is. So I want to get to the pay discussion because mm-hmm. this is this is a topic that I have just been thinking about so much recently with, I, you know, I am in the self-employed space and the entrepreneur space, and I spent a lot of time in the school systems as well. And it just, it seems to be this whole, I guess this, this presenting of either, or like, this is good, this is bad. Whereas it's not really that one is good or bad or better. It's just that they're different. And I think that the pay discussion is really interesting as well, because when I transitioned to a self-employed person and I had to think about, okay, if I want to build this business business up and replace my income, how much do I actually have to make as a self-employed person? How much am I actually making as an SLP with all of these other benefits considered, not to mention the whole idea of, you know, being a self-employed person, the the decision fatigue is just, you know, I could, that's a whole separate conversation, but the compensation piece. And I thought you made some really important points there. Do you want to, want to get into those? 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, pay is a big part of, it's a big part of our conversation, what's going on right now. And I think um, in a helping field and a helping profession and a job that takes so much heart, like, you know, SLP, PT, OT, teaching, special education, um, it can be sort of difficult to talk about it sometimes. And so mm-hmm. I think my first point is transparency is really important. Um, it's important that we be transparent when we can with our colleagues, with the public um, about what we're making and if it's, you know, appropriate or not. Um, because I think if we're not being transparent, it can lead to um, unfortunate situations, you know, and people mm-hmm. may be feeling like they're being taken advantage of, or maybe them not taking advantage of something that they didn't know about. Um, yeah, and I think that's where sort of maybe unions come in too. Um, I think they do a really good job in a lot of times, not always, <laughs> about mm-hmm. helping with that transparency piece. Um, at least in the schools, I know it works very differently in in the hospitals and the medical settings, and obviously in private practice, it's a whole different ball game. Some of that information is public. So special ed cooperatives will post, you can actually look up what somebody made. Same with school districts. It may, it may be different state by state, but I know in my state, I'm in Illinois. Some of that information is public. So you can actually yeah. see what people make. Yes, absolutely. I, on my post here, I break down my salary as a daily rate and an hourly rate. Um, and it's also broken. It's on the district websites. Um, you can often look it up. And so um, sometimes people don't realize or they don't take the time to do it or whatever it might be. So I encourage people to do it and to look up um, to look up those numbers and to know them, not obsess over them, but to know them. Yeah, well, and, and also, I think it is, it's important to understand how much you really are being compensated, because insurance and benefits, mm-hmm. and pension, I mean, that is, that's something that people don't always factor in, especially if they are thinking about transitioning to being a contractor or self-employed. And and again, all of those options are great options that can work for people. You just have to know what you're dealing with and understand what you're actually getting. Yes. And one thing, the one of the SLPs that I work with, she's my mentor in many ways. Um, when I was applying to a lot of my early jobs and, you know, she obviously wanted me to come work with the district where she works and I wanted to as well, but I ended up making a different decision to go to a different district in large part based on um, money. They were able to pay a little bit better at the time. Um, and one thing that I appreciate was she said, you know, your family and you know what you need to do for yourself. And I think that kind of comes back to what you're saying. It's important that we know what benefits do I need? Can I take advantage of that? Or is that not going to help me out? Mm-hmm. Um, and to have those numbers and to weigh them out um, and, benefits, insurance, retirement can make a huge difference when you think about your compensation. Um, for me, it's about $50 an hour-ish without the benefits and up to almost 75-ish with the benefits. That's a huge difference. Yeah. And you need to really compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. Um, and so knowing, okay, if this is a salary, how many days a year are you expected to work for that salary? How many hours a day? Um, what's rolled into it? What's not? That was really, I've never seen it really broken down like that. I thought that was really helpful. How did you figure out how to do that? (laughs) Uh, Just played around with it in Excel. I just kind of um, took the numbers and broke them down and um, kind of thought out. I thought back to when I was looking for my CF and um, comparing the different offers. And I was looking in very different settings. I was looking in schools, private practices, and a sort of hospital-based clinic And so I got very different offers. Schools have a very different calendar and they presented things in a very different way. Um, And so I tried then to break it down into, you know, an hourly rate that I could truly compare. Um, And I just did that same process with my salary in this post. That's interesting. Yeah. When I, when I was thinking about 
transitioning and being self-employed, my husband has a finance background and is good with all of that stuff. So he figured it out for me. Um, I, I'm pretty good with numbers and I probably could have figured it out myself, but I was like, just you, t- you take care of this. Tell if you you've got the expert and you trust them, why yep. not? That's a yeah. perfect situation. Yeah. <laughs> I'll delegate where I can. We're going to take a quick break here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a strategy that I teach in the School of Clinical Leadership. So you're probably noticing that advocacy efforts require a lot of relationship building. And in order to make that happen, you have to have the right systems and protocols in place, as well as know how to actually handle those conversations when you are talking to teachers, talking to people on the bargaining team, and talking to school leaders. A busy clinician knows that you probably don't have a ton of time for that, so having a good process and understanding what your plan is going forward is so essential. I teach clinicians how to do this with a concept that I refer to as asset stacking. The concept of asset stacking is just exactly how it sounds. You are creating assets and stacking them on top of each other so that over time you're building systems, protocols, and relationships that are going to help you build leverage so that you can advocate for what you and your colleagues need in order to support students. And really this requires you to start thinking very strategically, thinking long-term, and also thinking like a leader. So that's what I show you how to do in the School of Clinical Leadership, where I show you how to use the asset stack method to actually make time to build the systems, protocols, and relationships that you need to advocate for your caseload and get your team working together efficiently. So to learn more about how to become a member of the School of Clinical Leadership, you're gonna wanna go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Again, that's drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the interview. So you've done some things with advocacy and I know that you have have a lot of experience with unions, just with your family and just professionally. So can you tell us a little bit about your background with just, you know, why you, what led you to being involved in the union and just some of your other past experience there? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'll talk a little about my just personal experience with it. I grew up in a sort of union family, as it's called. My um, grandfather was in the Carpenters Union. He um, has always been, was always involved in labor during his um, life and career and um, in lots of ways in Southern California and different groups. And so I just kind of grew up around it. My dad was um, in a labor union for many years. His brothers, my one of my brothers uh, in different trades, plumbing, electricians, sheet metal, uh, carpentry, painting, um, and so I always just knew unions and kind of knew what they were. And I didn't really get it, of course, when you're a kid, you mm-hmm. just think, oh, yeah, this is how the world works. Um, and then when I was um, an undergraduate doing some of my early teaching work, I learned a little bit more about teachers unions specifically and how they work and some benefits to being involved. And I kind of thought, OK, yeah, that'll be relevant at some point or another. And then it wasn't really actually until I got into SLP that I got very involved in the union in my my first district that I worked with. Um, and I got involved because I saw things that didn't make sense. And I started asking questions and people said, Hey, come ask those questions in our meeting and mm-hmm. come participate in the meeting when you do know the answer. And so somehow I ended up on the, the executive board for my local chapter of NEA, the National Education Association, one of the big unions for educational profession, professionals. 
Um, and then that same year, I ended up on the bargaining team, which was um, a fascinating experience, yeah. sometimes a little unfortunate, um, but because really, <laughs> what, what's that expression about you see how the sausage is made or something like that, just oh, seeing yeah. what went on and how the bargaining happened, you know, I, I was maybe a little bit innocent or naive before that and just thinking that everyone sat down very calmly and rationally and made a list and said, oh, we can do this and oh, well, we can't do that. Um, so that was how I got really in-depth involved. Um, and it kind of scared me a little bit. I'm definitely still involved and I still want to be involved. Um, I need, I'm taking a little time now that I have other personal things to focus on because it's very time consuming, mm -hmm. um, in a new district that I'm in, but I continue to be involved. I'm a, a member of my union. I think it's a great thing, um, to be involved with and to pay to be a member of. Um, and I continue to advocate and lobby. I went just earlier this week to my state capitol for a lobbying initiative with the union, um, talked with legislatures all over Capitol Hill for the day about different bills that were being presented and, um, yeah. So really unions were one way that you learned more about political lobbying and other specific things that you can be doing just beyond local. Absolutely. For example, with the lobbying days, if your local union or state union or any organization is organizing them, there's usually a training at the beginning of the day, two or three hours, and you sit with other professionals like you and they explain to you, these are some important bills. And in my case, they've always sort of put them up on a projector, given everyone a copy of it. And they read through the legalese and explain what these different things mean. And they explain um, sometimes the impact if it's something that we might not understand. But a lot of times they ask the people there like, okay, how would that impact your profession? How would that impact your day? And those stories um, are really influential when you get to share them with each other and then with lawmakers. Um, so there's a lot of learning that goes on in the lobby day. You don't have to know what you're doing. They teach you a lot of the skills. Um, and you connect with other professionals, learn about other opportunities there. So what actually happens when you go and lobby? I mean, I, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but what are you actually doing when you, you, you sit down and you go through, these are the bills and this is, this is what they mean. And then you go and you actually, you actually yeah. do the lobbying. What are you actually doing? <laughs> yeah. So I think the first part is always educating yourself, making sure you understand what you're talking about or reading about as best you can. Um, and even if you don't have time to necessarily read the deep legislation, a big part of it is sharing your story. So you you walk around your Capitol building, legislative office, if it's an in-person lobbying day, and you knock on doors and you talk to people. Hopefully you get to talk with the senator or the representative themselves, but a lot of times they're very busy people. They might be on the floor, they might be in other meetings. Um, so it's best to plan ahead if you can um, and to schedule a meeting. Um, but even if you can't talk with the representative directly, a lot of the times you can talk with their staff and they trust their staff and they rely on their staff. Um, and so don't underestimate the importance of talking with um, whoever answers the door, even yeah. if the representative's not available and telling your story to them, um, because they'll probably pass it along and they'll be in the meeting where the decision is made and where the senator or the representative's mind is made up. Um, and so it's a lot of knocking on doors and talking to people, which I really enjoy doing. So it's a relatively easy thing for me to do. It can be a little scary at first, but if you go with a friend or a coworker, you make it a good time. There's also lobbying through emails, through phone calls, but it's the same thing. Knocking on the door, dialing the phone number, sending the email and telling your story, and then including a specific thing or action that you want the senator or the representative or the person um, to do. So please add your support to this bill, or please make sure this bill gets amended to do X, Y, Z. So it's almost like an open house, the actual 
fit when you actually go in person where they just they let you come in and walk around and just talk to whoever you've set a meeting with or whoever you can just get in to talk to? Yeah, especially in my state. I, I live in practice in New Mexico and we have our state legislature works a little differently than a lot of other states where they're not full-time professional legislature. They only meet for a couple months a year. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very busy couple months and there's lots of people running around the Capitol for those couple months um, trying to get time. But even in other states where they do have a full-time professional year-round legislature, yeah, if you organize and go on a day, absolutely. And if you sort of go individually, um, it'll be a little calmer. But yeah, lots, a lot of walking around, knocking on doors, open so house. You can That's actually a good way just go and try to set it up on your own if you want to. Yeah, you can look up who your reps are, email them and say, hey, I'm a constituent and I'd love to have a meeting with you. Another important thing to know is um, which who you're a constituent to, so who your representatives are. Um, but you can talk to other people who aren't directly representing the district that you live in and to know what committees they're on. Um, because a lot of times in the legislative process, all the representatives and senators don't have time to read a specific bill and deeply, deeply understand it. So they rely on a committee to do some of that work. It's a small subgroup of legislators who read the bill and dig into the bill and hear from the experts. And they present a recommendation usually saying, please do pass or please don't pass or please amend. Um, and so even talking to those committee members, um, those key committee members can be really important too. So a cons- if you're a constituent, it means that you live in the district of that particular politician. Yes, exactly. Okay. I um, Political science was not one of my strongest, <laughs> my strongest courses when I was, I know I had to take a couple entry level ones in college and yeah. I then you forget it when you don't use it. But Absolutely. I'm sure you've used learned a lot of this language on the spot as you've been navigating this process. I, I'm seeing a theme with storytelling and the interviewing and graduate essays mm-hmm. and yes, physical interviewing, graduate essays, and also in lobbying. So that seems to be one of your one of your uh <laughs> one of your superpowers, I guess. Is that I hate to say superpower. It's a skill that you've probably worked at really, really hard to hone. Very kind of you to say. I I never thought about that, but it is definitely a theme that kind of weaves through a lot of those things, that connecting with people and sharing your story. So to go back to the email, if you want to email your, okay, so you, which politician do you actually, if you have a certain bill that you want to be passed or you have something that, that you want to be done you you email your congressman is that the right person or the committee that is responsible for passing those bills yeah both i say to start usually with the person that represents your district okay. um, the geographic area that you live in um and hopefully over time they kind of get to know who you are if you're re- emailing them regularly or something like that but definitely email them because they'll be voting on it hopefully one way or another and if they happen to be on the education committee or the healthcare committee even better Mm-hmm. Um, but if yeah. they don't, after you email your representative, yeah, look up the committee and who's on it and email those people directly. Mm-hmm. So be persistent. So you said yeah. we need it. So we probably need some kind of an attention getting subject line and hook at the beginning and then a good story. And then some kind of a call to action at the end where you're asking them this or to do this or do some specific action, pass this bill or don't pass this bill. Yeah, I think that's a great way to summarize it. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly it. Um, Yeah, grab their attention, tell them your story and how it impacts you. um, And then a specific, clear, concise call to action. 
I think that's exactly it. And always, I think, remember to, um, what's that expression? You catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Oh, Sometimes, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, these issues are deeply personal and deeply meaningful, and it can be very easy to um, get into emotionally charged situations. Um, but as much as possible and whenever possible, keeping things calm and collected and professional um, really matters. Yeah. I've seen the discussions get very heated, especially when you think about, you know, they're, they're talking people, I'm not going to mention any names of specific organizations, but organizations that are responsible for providing advocacy and lobbying and people are very vocal about their opinions about certain politicians, organizations, and yeah, I, I get it that in, in, in a private conversation that might be okay to do, but publicly, probably, it probably won't get them to respond to your email. <laughs> yeah. And I think it, it, I like that, that in a private conversation, that's very different. I think mm-hmm. remembering why you're there and what you're lobbying for and what you're mm-hmm. asking for and keeping that at the front of your mind. And then kind of like we said earlier, it's important to be able to understand the other side and their opposition to something or support of something. And people aren't going to open up to you and want to have a lengthy conversation with you if they feel attacked or if they feel threatened, they're going to shut down. And Mm -hmm. so keeping things as calm as possible so that you can understand the other side and make a genuine connection there when possible. I wonder how many angry emails these politicians get on a daily basis. I can't can't even even imagine. imagine. Yeah, no, I don't (laughs) want to know. Oh, and I say the same thing about school administrators. I mean, they probably have a lot of angry emails that they get from people in the community, their staff. And so, yeah, it's everybody has someone that they report to. Yes. And I think when I think about, you know, as a speech and language pathologist, you know, serving people with communication and swallowing disorders and disabilities, um, I think it's going to be harder for somebody who's in a certain situation to stay cool, calm, and collected when the bill or the law affects them on a deeply personal level. Mm -hmm. And sometimes us advocating for the populations we represent, we kind of have a little bit of um, more emotional space to the issue. We care about it just as much, but it's different because it's not as personal for us. And I think that's why it's probably even more important for us to advocate, lobby, and educate Um, on behalf of the populations we work with, because we have that sort of professional armor that we get to wear to help us um, stay collected in those situations. Yeah. Or even if you had, I think sometimes people when they're not in the thick of it, and it, it happened, and it's been, there's been a little bit of time, sometimes that can be a better place to be where you can provide that help when you do have some space to process things, it makes you a little bit more objective. depending on the the scenario. I know that when I was in the schools, I was a member of the union and they were pretty good about proactively. I would get calls and emails all the time, like vote for this bill. And this is the candidate we support for this. And this is why. And so even if you're a member of the union, a lot of times they, they do proactively reach out to you. And I think that those are probably the emails that get to your spam (laughs) <laughs> box that yes. yeah you should probably open those <laughs> yeah when you have the bandwidth to try it's important to educate ourselves and that's another advantage i think of unions or professional organizations because there's so much information out there all the time they can kind of filter it and summarize it for us 
um, and, and help us focus on the issues that are important to us. And another thing I tell people is they don't need to be an expert on all of the topics and all of the issues. Yeah. Um, for this legislative session in my state, I'm picking one bill to really understand a little bit more deeply and to talk to people about. And I have colleagues and people I respect and work with who are picking other bills and that's good. Um, yeah. and if somebody has a question about this, they'll say, you know, I'm not the expert. I can refer you to this person who knows a little bit more about it and it helps reduce some of the overwhelm too. Cause it can be, it can feel very overwhelming. Yeah. And then you, you get discouraged and don't do anything because yes. you, you don't see results because you have spread yourself too thin. You can't die yes. on every hill. No, <laughs> at least not yes. all at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Baby steps little by little. Yeah. I just, so I, I'm curious if you've ever read some of these articles or just heard, because I've talked to some people in the past who have not worked in education and they're just, you know, people say unions are unnecessary or do, why do we even need them? Or I've heard the argument that maybe they're necessary for some fields and not others. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) It's a great question. I think it's a topic that goes around a lot. Um, I think I definitely believe in the power of unions and collective Mm -hmm. bargaining. Um, Do I think they're perfect organizations that do 100% good all the time? No, absolutely not. They're inefficient and they're bureaucratic, just like anything else. But I think on the whole, they're ultimately representing the interests of the many workers there. Um, And we need someone representing our interests when we are workers. Um, And so in that sense, I definitely believe in them. Um, Yeah, I think they can... Mm-hmm. do a lot of uh, of uh, important work. And when you look at um, sort of like the numbers behind it, there are a lot of benefits to um, being involved in terms of compensation, in terms of um, resources that are available to to people in different workplaces, and not just in education, but in, in lots of different fields and in, in trades, um, especially there's a lot of them. Yeah. Some of the trades where there's physical danger in what they do, I could see how that would be so important. And obviously it's important for, for teachers and people in education and healthcare as well. So when you were an SLP as and you were on the bargaining committee, I'm curious how how that worked with so I've I've been talked to different therapists in the past that have gone to their administration and gone to their unions about specific issues. And they just didn't have the numbers behind that because they were the lone SLP in the district. And they were told you're not, you know, there's not enough of you for us to care about this enough. We have to go worry about this other issue that's for the teachers. That's for so many more people. And I've, yeah, I've had some really in-depth conversations with people over pay and things like that, where they were really, um, yeah, they they were in bad situations because they weren't a priority because there wasn't enough of them. So I'm curious if you've seen that and how you worked through those types of situations. Yeah, I definitely understand that, especially with SLPs or PTs or social workers, because we're so few mm-hmm. usually in the schools compared to teachers. And I was just, when I went to this lobbying day, I was just talking with a senator who was a former teacher himself. Um, and he was working on some legislation for educational assistance. And he said, you know, everyone talks about the sexy jobs, the jobs people notice the most, which is teachers. And they deserve absolutely a lot mm-hmm. of that detention because they're doing a lot of the hardest work. But um, I think that's where it's important that we be embedded in our communities and we be talking to and collaborating with the other professionals we work with 
as much as possible so that people know about the critical work that we do. If we're only ever, um, you know, pulling kids out and going and hanging out in our room and then just sending them back and we never meet and talk with anybody else, well, what reason have we given them to care about us as as mm-hmm. valuable members of the team, as people who serve our students and help them? But when they see the benefits and the impacts that we can have on our students and their students that they also care about, of course, they're going to want to help us. I think also it's important that we um, try to be as selfless as possible when we're thinking about these issues. Um, I obviously wish we could get a pay raise every year. We know we have to fight tooth and nails for it in the schools. Um but I think with my salary around seventy to eighty thousand dollars a year, it's a lot less important to me than um, you know maybe the nutritional staff or the bus drivers who are fighting to get an extra dollar to their hourly rate added in. And so sometimes I have to think, you know, that's going to have a bigger impact on them than it is on me. And mm-hmm. think about the ways that that's also going to help my students. Um, for example, there's um, one of the issues I was lobbying for on Monday was more prep time specifically for classroom teachers. And you can say, well, that doesn't affect me as an SLP. It doesn't directly, but the more prep time my teachers have, the better they can do for my students too. You know, the more yeah. progress my students are going to make because those teachers are going to be preparing better lessons. And sometimes it takes that um, stepping back to see the big perspective. Um, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, yeah, I could see with the, with the prep time because there's a lot of times we ask teachers to do things you go to a teacher and say, I'm doing this thing in therapy. Can you do this in your classroom? We're asking them to do additional work. So actually them getting more prep time is going to make our lives easier. If you think yes, about it, then yes. they have more time to do whatever we said. Maybe you could make the teacher some kind of a training video or tutor- a tutorial that they could go over in their plan time. And so that actually does benefit you if you think about it, because Time is the biggest complaint that I hear from people who work in the schools. Yes, or making sure that we have enough educational assistance in our classrooms. Um, Sometimes they're the people who get time to pull a student aside and work with them in a small group or one-on-one, but they can't do that if they're not there. And so making sure those positions are funded and taken care of is is really important too. And if we have time, I want to jump back to sort of my experience on the bargaining committee and that I was not the lone SLP. I think, let me think about the numbers here. I think we're at four SLPs out of the like eight of us. It was just a weird fluke year. Yeah. Somehow SLPs specifically sort of took over the bargaining committee and the union executive team very inadvertently. We were all elected. It was all, you know, very fair. It just sort of happened that we all had issues that we really cared about and um, and it worked out that year. And so I think sometimes too, you can be the the tiny little drop that starts things or the, the first little snowflakes that starts a snowball and an avalanche of getting other people excited and engaged and thinking about it. Um, so you might be the only one at first, um, but you might inspire others, uh, SLPs or other positions to get involved and to, to advocate to. That would be, that is kind of interesting that it, if you're on the committee, it is different than talking to your building representative. Not that that's not an important thing to do, but being actually on the committee and actually in there, because there's been times when I've talked to the building rep. And I felt like they didn't really understand what I was saying. And it, you know, I don't, I don't fault them for it, but it, they just didn't really know what I was saying. And so if I was actually in the committee meeting, maybe I would have been able to get my voice heard a little bit more effectively, or even for, I would be interested to see if there's ways that SLPs, psychs and social workers, if they are employed by the district and part of the union, I know sometimes they're not. 
if there's some alliances we could form there just because as related service providers, some of the things that would benefit us would also benefit the psychologists and the social workers, obviously above and beyond some of those examples you gave where it does, if the teachers do get more then it does help us. I think that's a really good point. And in the district that I'm in and in our previous district, we created a position that year, uh, an executive on the board specifically to represent um, ancillary support providers, related support personnel, however you want to call them, and to give that those people a point person to go to um, and to make sure that their voice is heard by the by the leadership within the union. So yeah, I think it's very important to to band together and to look at issues that do affect those sort of subunits within the bargaining unit, within the team. Um, and we can find a lot in common with them. And there are issues that affect us the same way it does you know, PTs, social workers, psychologists, for example, billing and time for billing. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that's very different and very unique to our position. Yeah, because if you think about the numbers thing, so if you have all the SLPs and all the psychs and all the social workers, then the numbers issue is a little bit different than, you know, if you have multiple people who are saying this issue is important and this is why, then it's a lot more powerful than if you're trying to be these separate siloed departments that aren't necessarily pooling your resources and working together. Absolutely. And that's the heart of what a union is. It's collective bargaining, people coming together and saying, you know, we as a collective group, all of our voices together can't be ignored. Mm -hmm. um, and when enough people pool their voices together, they, they they're heard. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that you were you were saying something about teacher plan time and then we went a different direction. Did you did you share everything that you wanted to say oh, about this topic? Yeah, just the importance of, um, you know, advocating for our colleagues whenever we can um, and then also hoping and trusting that they're going to have our back when something comes up, you know, and saying, you remember last year when we went with you and lobbied to get you that prep time? We're really asking that you come and help us out this year to make sure mm -hmm. that we get our budget increased for materials or to make sure that we're included when they're planning spaces in the school. We don't want to, you know, be working in the hallway or whatever it might be. And so that um, relationship building is important. Yeah, that's a good other. point. Is that a lot of times you might, it, it, part, the first step in getting something for your department might be helping another department get what they want. <laughs> And yeah. hopefully it's, and again, it all works out to be mutually beneficial in the end. Yeah, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's not like just because I need this thing that makes somebody else's need any less valid. We can both need something at the same mm -hmm. time. And through a union, hopefully we can come together and help each other get the things that we both need. It doesn't have to be competition. It can absolutely be collaboration. And we're more effective when we collaborate with each other when we're not infighting. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of seeing the bigger picture of, okay, if this person over here gets this, that actually does help me, even if it doesn't seem like a direct relationship. That's that's a really, really good point. Um, and that's what I tell a lot of people when they're thinking about service delivery. A lot, I mean, even just as something as simple as, what do I do in therapy with this kid who has this particular set of needs, it's like, well, let's think about what's going on across the board here. And then we can make decisions about what we're doing in therapy. Context specific. <laughs> Very good connection. I love it. Yeah. So we are getting towards the end here. I think we're getting to a good place to wrap up. So you have a lot of resources that you, you have some great articles on your site. So can you share a little bit more about where people can connect with you 
and read some of your work? Yeah, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I think if you're interested in the graduate admission side of things, the speechblog.com is where all of that information lives. But now that I'm in practice, um, I still enjoy writing and being creative. And so I've moved over to thinkslp.com. And that's where I'm writing about topics of interest to me, creating materials for your paid um, and sharing those when I think it's appropriate to do so. Um, so yeah, think SLP. There's a contact page there. It's the best way to get in touch with me. And your book is available on Amazon and anywhere yes. else? Amazon? Amazon. Amazon. And what's the name again? SLP to be. S-L-P-T-O. B-E-S-L-P to be an unofficial guide for getting into graduate school for speech language pathology. Great. Well, we'll link to all of those in the show notes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it in the conversation. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check the show notes for all of the links to where you can connect with Michael. You'll be able to learn about his blog, his book, and the articles that we discussed in this episode. So if you are someone who wants to get involved with advocacy efforts, if you feel frustrated and you feel like you don't have a voice, you will definitely want to check out his resources. Also, remember to check out the School of Clinical Leadership if you want to get involved with advocacy efforts, but you have no idea how you're going to make time to do it. If you want to provide comprehensive support for your caseload and you want to get your team on board, but you're not really sure where to start, then you will definitely want to check out the program. One of the biggest initiatives in the program is that I show you how to develop a plan that gets your entire IEP team on board with providing executive functioning support across the day. So I talk about specific strategies and things that you can share when you are training your team to support kids across the day. So to check out that enrollment page to learn more about how you can become a member and what's involved in the program, you're gonna wanna go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Before we wrap up, remember that it helps me out so much if you rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then also, if you have a guest that you have in mind for the show that you'd like to hear me interview, reach out to me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. I am looking for people who are involved in leadership initiatives in their clinical role, people who are using their clinical skills in a creative way to foster innovation in the field and who are showing leadership and supporting kids and making a difference in the field. So if you are interested in being a guest on the show, you can also reach out to me. Again, that's talk to me at drkarenspeech.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.